Good morning. Not this short, Dave. <laughs> a little taller than that. Uh, would you turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 15? We'll be looking this morning at uh, a familiar story uh, in verses 11 through 32. Uh, the story uh, commonly known as the prodigal son, or I think Tim Keller also calls it the parable of the two lost sons. Uh, but either way, it's a familiar story uh, that we'll be looking at. So Luke 15, I think it's on the screen as well behind me, uh, verses 11 through 32. Uh, this is the Word of God. And he, that's Jesus, said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of your property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself... He said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion, and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It is fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and now is found. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? Our great God, we come to you this morning as a people who need to hear your word. We pray that as we open your word, we won't just read it but that you will read us by it, uh, that you will open our hearts, that you will teach us what we should believe, and that you would teach us how we should live. 
Father, show us how to have the joy of the Father. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Joy is not a desirable thing you can do without. Joy is not a nicety. It's not an option. It's not a good idea. It's not something you can add to your life once you get everything else taken care of. But we so often treat it that way. We treat joy like it's just sort of one more checkbox that once we get everything else done, if we can add joy, that's an okay thing to do. It's, it's a nicety. It is the frosting on the cake. But there's a problem for us this morning. That problem is this. You are not designed to live without joy. You are not created to live without joy. God created you to experience joy. Even more than that, in the New Testament, God actually commands you to have joy. You are created for joy. You are commanded to have joy. And what I want to suggest to you this morning is that this very familiar story is a story about joy. Now, it's, it's a familiar story, and we know many things about it, and maybe we think of it as a story of redemption, uh, a story of acceptance, a story about how we can never run too far away from God, that we can never actually get away from His love. He'll always find us and love us. It's, it's about that. It's certainly about those things. But it's also, as I hope we'll see this morning, a story about joy. And in this story, you have two sons who don't have joy. You've got a younger son who's searching for joy in all the wrong places. You've got an older son who's doing his best to live a life without joy, it looks like. And you've got a father who offers joy. You have a father who not only offers joy, but is himself the source of joy. And so if there's one thing I want you to see from this story as we walk through it together, it's this. Jesus is committed to your joy. Jesus is committed to your joy. So let's look at this younger brother. Jesus is telling this parable, and you've got a younger brother who works and, and lives with a father who is wealthy. Seems like this father has a wealthy estate with many servants, probably some livestock, probably some agriculture. And so his two sons are basically his executive vice presidents. And you've got a younger son who works, and he might, he might work. He's probably not super diligent. We see that the older brother is kind of that one. Uh, but the younger brother uh, one day looks around the property and realizes that he really likes having all this stuff, but he doesn't really like having all this responsibility. Uh, doesn't really like working. Doesn't really like doing what he's doing. Doesn't even really like being with his father. And so this younger son has this, this rash scheme. He's going to go to his father and demand his inheritance. I mean, he basically goes to his father and says, Dad, I wish you were dead. Just give me the stuff that's coming to me when you die. I, that's all I want. That's all I care about. And can you imagine how the father feels? This is a, a seemingly very caring father, a loving man uh, who, who God has blessed richly. Uh, he's got a wealthy, wealthy household. And his son comes to him, spitting in his face. I wish you were dead. Give me my share of the inheritance. You can only imagine how heartbreaking 
that is, for the father. But this heartbroken father obliges. He divides his property between them. He gives the son the inheritance that would be coming to him. You know, when we search for joy, sometimes God does this to us too. When we are searching for joy in places that can't ultimately bring that joy to us, sometimes God lets us go. Sometimes God lets us see what it is we're actually asking for. Sometimes God lets us see the mess that we will make of our lives. You know, sometimes we look for joy and we just decide that, you know, maybe we're tired of, of fighting against sin in our life and we're just going to embrace it. We're just going to say, okay, God, I'm done, I'm done with this. Uh, I'm going in. This is what I'm doing now. I'm fine with it. Uh, and God sometimes lets us go to see the wreck of our lives we can make. You know, sometimes maybe it's even something like uh, you know that you shouldn't take a job or you know you shouldn't do something uh, and you decide to do it anyway. And God lets you go uh, to see what it is you were asking for, to see what it is that you want. You know, when God lets us go, so I should say, sometimes God does stop us. Sometimes God doesn't let us go and make a wreck of our lives. And that's his grace. But it's also God's grace to let us go. Uh, God is gracious like the father is gracious in letting his younger son take the inheritance and run. Both of those things, letting us go or stopping, letting us go or stopping is both God's mercy and both God's grace, both for our good and both for our joy. So the younger son takes the money and he goes hog wild. He goes to a far off location, let's just call it Vegas. Um, he might as well go to Vegas. He is, he is just spending crazy. He is making it rain in the casino. He's buying wine and champagne for everybody. He's just spending like it's going out of style. It's like Mike Tyson in the 80s. Like $50 million in like three years, gone. It's gone. He's just, he's just spending. And he's got friends, of course he's got friends. Everybody loves the guy who's like buying drinks for everybody. Right? Everybody loves the guy who's just spending money, who's buying fur coats for his posse. That's what's going on here. But he spins and he spins and he spins and it's gone. He spins it all. I don't know how long it took. I'd be surprised if it was more than a month. I, I don't, it, it's just gone. He is just spending. And he goes bankrupt. He has nothing left. Uh, not only does he lose his money, the money that he thought was going to make him happy, right? He didn't want the father, just wanted the father's stuff. He, he, he thought this stuff was going to make him happy. It's gone. The friends that he liked him when he had the money, they're nowhere to be found. So, you know, he starts thinking, well, I've got to find something to do with myself. So you can imagine he starts looking for jobs. And like most people in this situation, maybe he's thinking he's qualified for upper management. Um, so he starts looking, kind of holding out for some management positions. Um, problem is, the economy's gone bad. We see there that there's a famine uh, in the land. You see that in verse 14. So the economy's gone bad. There's no upper-level management. So he's thinking maybe mid-level management, looking around, putting some resumes, some feelers out. Got the resume on monster.com. Nothing. So he gets the only job he can find. He gets a job feeding pigs in the field. It's hard to overstate how demeaning that job would have been perceived by the original audience of this parable, right? These are, these are Jews that Jesus is speaking to, uh, Jews who observe the kosher food laws. Uh, they, you know, God has told them not to eat pigs, that pigs are an unclean animal. So this is an inherently degrading, 
debasing, dehumanizing kind of work. I was trying to think of something analogous for us. Uh, I didn't want to be graphic, but the only thing I could think of was this. Forgive me. Um, The closest job to feeding pigs for a Jew would have been like the guy who cleans the porta-potties at an outdoor music festival. It's, It's just bad. It's dirty. It's smelly. It is unclean. It is debasing. That's what this guy's doing. He's gone from executive vice president to mucking out the porta potties at Bonnaroo in a month. Not only that, he's starving. He is longing to eat the food that he's feeding the pigs. And he's, I think it sounds like he's asking his boss, hey, can I eat some of the slop? And they say no one gave him anything. No food. He's, he's, he's working at the outdoor music festival, cleaning the porta potties, and he's longing to eat the food off the ground next to the trash can. And they're saying, sorry, no way, man. This guy has fallen all the way. He hit rock bottom. And, and as you see, when you hit rock bottom so frequently, you, you can have a moment of clarity. And that's what happens to this guy. Uh, verse 17 starts by saying, when he came to himself... Uh, he had that moment of clarity where he recognized this isn't really all it's cracked up to be. And so he remembers something. He maybe has just sort of a hint of a thought that sort of hatches into a scheme. He remembers that the servants at his father's estate at least had food to eat. They had plenty of food. Uh, they, they had warmth. They had clean clothes. They maybe even had places to sleep. Um, the, father's, uh, the father's servants were well taken care of. And this idea, this, this memory kind of hatches into a scheme. Well, you know, maybe I can go back and get on as a servant in my dad's house. And he starts thinking it through. I mean, he knows he's blown it. Like, he's not going back, like, at the same level of compensation. Like, he's not going to be the executive vice president. He's going back just to hope to sweep the floors. Uh, and he starts thinking about it, and he decides to go for it. Now, what's the problem here? The problem is that the younger son still just wants the father's stuff, right? His his delusions of grandeur are gone. He's no longer making it rain in the casino, but he still just wants the stuff that the father can give him. Just at this point, he'll be satisfied with food, uh, blankets, a place to sleep, clean clothes. He still just wants the father's stuff. He is still completely self-absorbed, self-interested, and seeking joy in the wrong places. I want to suggest this morning that we do the same thing, Uh, that we so frequently look for joy in all the wrong places. Uh, Where do you do that? You know, maybe you look for joy in your marriage, uh, that you think your spouse is going to bring you the joy that's gnawing a hole in your chest. Maybe your work. You think that your work might sustain you and fulfill you in a way that brings you joy? Or maybe kids. Maybe kids are what you're thinking is going to really just bring you the joy that you lack. Now, of course, none of these are bad things. These are things God has given us. Marriage, work, kids, uh, school, all the different places we might seek joy are good things. But the problem is that none of them can actually provide the ultimate joy that we crave. And so when they fail us, and they will fail us, we start to look elsewhere. And you see that everywhere in our society. You know, when, uh, when marriages uh, cease to offer us joy, a lot of times we just jump and go into a new one. Uh, when kids start to <laughs> keep us up at night, uh, 
we, we cease to think we're going to find joy there, and we just kind of marginalize our kids, maybe focus on work more. When work ceases to give us joy, we change jobs or change fields. We look for joy in places that will disappoint us and look elsewhere when they fail to bring us joy. Now, let me clarify something. Our problem is not that we want too much out of life. That's not our problem. Our problem is that we are searching for joy in the wrong places, not that we want joy. Uh, It is a problem not with desire. We don't want too much out of life. We want joy from the wrong things. C.S. Lewis captures this really, really well in a great quote from his um, address, The Weight of Glory. He says this. He says, Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy, infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. You see, the problem is not that we want joy. The problem is not that we want too much out of life. We were built for joy. God designed you for joy, for an infinite and ultimate joy. But we look for joy in places that can't provide that. And it disappoints us. And we, we remain joyless. We can't find ultimate joy in the Father's stuff. So the Son has decided that he's going to go home. He's going to try to beg a job as a, as a janitor in his father's estate. And so he goes and, and he starts walking home and he's preparing an apology speech. And you can imagine how formal this sounds. He says, you know, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your servants. He prepares this apology speech um, that he thinks sounds really, really great. And you can imagine that as he's walking back home in dirty clothes, filled with shame and remorse and regret, that he's probably running every scenario in his mind of what's going to happen when he sees his dad. You know, is his dad going to kind of gloat over him? Like, I knew you were going to blow it. Is his dad going to gloat? Is he going to, you know, just look really stern? Is he going to turn him away? Is he going to give him a whole bunch of conditions? Like, you can come work here, but you can only, you know, he's only going to give you like three hours a week to work there. I mean, he just doesn't know. He's probably running every scenario. It's a long walk home when you're filled with shame. And so the sun is getting closer. You can think maybe he's at the dress rehearsal now for his apology speech. He's got the inflection down. Father, I have sinned against you and against heaven. You can imagine it. He's, got it. he's ready to go. He gets closer, and then something happens. His father sees him when he's still a long way off. You know, it's hard to see people when they're a long way off. You can kind of sometimes recognize them, but there's a sense in which the father is able to see him because the father is looking for him. This doesn't seem like a chance encounter. This sounds like a father who is sitting on his front porch, looking down the road, waiting to see that familiar walk come up the path. 
And the father sees the son, and he recognizes him, and he jumps up, and he runs down the steps, and he runs down the path, and he runs out the gate, and he runs down the road, and he gets to his son, and before his son can even launch into the apology speech, the father has embraced him, and he's weeping, and he is kissing him, and he is overjoyed. And and the, and the father doesn't even listen to the apology speech. You see, the son kind of starts to talk, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. He doesn't even get to the part where he asks to be a servant. The father's already interrupted him. The father doesn't stand there and demand apologies. He doesn't demand restitution. He doesn't demand or even put conditions on the son coming home. Like, son, you know, it's, it's okay for you to come home, but we're going to have to establish some, some ground rules for, you know, bedtime. And he doesn't do any of that. He just welcomes the son home. He's, he's already yelling to the servants, bring the robe, bring the ring, kill the fatted calf. My son has come home. You know, each one of those things kind of represents something cool. Uh, the ring is like the family ring. Like when he puts that ring back on his son's finger, he is saying, you are my son. The robe is, is like the, the dress of the area. He's, he's welcoming him home. Uh, it's like you might have a bathrobe that you really like. Nicer than a bathrobe, though. Um, the robe is, is a welcome home. Killing the fattened calf, that's a big deal. It, it, you know, a fattened calf is not something you buy at the fresh market. Um, you have to, like, have a pregnant cow who gives birth, and then you have to, like, feed the calf until it gets fat, and then you can kill it. You, you, like, you save the fattened calf for a special occasion. Uh, my, we have a special occasion thing in our house. Um, my wife has a bottle of wine that she purchased in France when she was there 10 years ago. Um, she's waiting for a special occasion to open it. Uh, so far, neither our marriage nor the birth of any of our children <laughs> have qualified. I don't, know, I don't know what we're waiting on. We've moved that bottle four or five times now. But, but it's a big deal. The father kills the fattened calf, and he says, it's party time, and it says they began to celebrate. You know, I think in my mind, I always sort of implicitly assumed that this was about quitting time on a Friday. Um, like, nobody had work tomorrow. Like, it was just sort of like, oh, we're going to wait till the end of the day. We're going to have a nice little get-together because the sun's coming home. For all I know, this is like 1030 on a Tuesday, and they're like quitting. They're done. They are having a party because this son has come home. Everything grinds to a halt to celebrate. It's a great scene. And then the older son enters the picture. The older son is working in the field uh, dutifully, to be certain, probably doing good work, uh, working hard. And he starts to hear the noises of fun. You ever heard the noises of fun happening somewhere else? You can kind of tell it's fun. It's not work noise. Um, he hears the noises of fun, and he sees a servant, and he says, hey, what's going on? Why is there, why is there fun happening on a Tuesday? And, and this, the servant tells him, he says, hey, good news. Your younger brother came back, and I love the language that he says, your father killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. Like, it's not just that he's alive that he's happy, but he has been received back. He has been welcomed back into the family safe and sound. And the older brother is furious. He is angry. He wants nothing to do with this. Why do you think he's angry? 
Why is the older brother angry? I mean, we, maybe we sort of intuitively know, but when the father comes to talk to him, we get a much better sense. You know, the father comes and it says entreats him, begs him to come in to be a part of the celebration. You see, the older son is angry because he's entitled. Look at his response. He says, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed you. Yet you never even gave me a young goat. Goat is not as good as, as cow um, that I might celebrate with my friends. The, younger son, the older son is furious because he's been obedient. He has been in the right all of this time. And as far as he's concerned, that was his fattened calf. You see, the older son lives in a world where well-planned and well-executed inputs are going to get very predictable outputs, where if you do the right things, you're going to get what you expect out of it. And it's interesting because I don't think that the older son even really wants the father's recognition. It's not that he wants the father's recognition. It's not that he wants uh, joy. I don't even think he cares that much about the fattened calf. He just wants what he's earned. But the older brother is sure of something. The younger brother has not earned the fattened calf. The older brother is furious because his world just got turned upside down. He lives in a world where duty and responsibility and obedience equate to reward. And that world just got turned upside down. I wonder how many of us live in that same world where we are obedient and dutiful and all we really want is what we think we've earned. What do you think God owes you? What is it that God owes you? Do you think that as a dutiful spouse, maybe God owes you a happy marriage? And that, you know, people just have no idea how much you've sacrificed and worked for your marriage? Maybe it's your children. Your, your children, you just want to be appreciated by your children because you have sacrificed and you've stayed up late. You haven't had a good night of sleep since they were born and they're 25 now. You just want to be appreciated. What do you think God's owed you? Maybe, maybe you've been working really hard at the same job for a long time and you just think you need a pay raise or you just think you need a promotion. But all you really want is what you think God owes you. What happens when we don't get what we think we're owed? We get angry, don't we? We get bitter. We get cynical. We do the same thing that the son did here, the older son. He questioned the father's goodness. He questioned the father's rightness. It was not right for you to receive back the younger son. But the father's response is great. The father in verse 31 says, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. He says, Son, you're always with me, and everything that's mine is yours. And in a real way, that's the truth, right? Because the younger son has already spent his inheritance. Everything that the father had would one day have been the older son's. You see, the older son doesn't just want the father's stuff. The older son wants what he's earned, and he wants his younger brother not to have what he has earned. He wants the younger brother to get his due as much as he wants his own due. But where does that leave him? Where does this worldview leave the older brother? The parable ends pretty suddenly there. But we don't get any indication that the older son had a moment where it clicked for him like it did for the younger brother. Uh, the older brother seems to end 
devoid of love, utterly separated from the Father, and without joy. I want to suggest that this parable should unsettle us. And one of the reasons it should unsettle us is because we really, really want to raise kids that look like the older brother, don't we? I mean, he's dutiful, he's obedient. We don't get a sense that he ever even talked back to his father disrespectfully, except for here, maybe. Um, He was a good steward. Um, He was responsible. Now, I mean, we, we want that for our kids. We want them to be responsible and obedient and dutiful. And, and even more than that, we're terrified that they're going to be the younger brother, that they're going to go off to college and just go wild. Now, what am I not saying? I'm not saying that what the younger brother did was good. That's not the takeaway from the parable. Uh, what I'm saying is, is that we have to be careful that we not mistake obedience and duty for love. Right? God is not interested in our obedience or our behavior. God is interested in our hearts. And so the younger son enters the joy of the father and not the older. The, uh, the younger son gets the joy that his father's offering, but the older is left without joy. And so I guess, you know, if you're thinking about parenting, I would say to make sure you're going after your kids' hearts. Go after your kids' hearts, not just their behavior. You see, both sons are joyless because both of them are separated from the source of true joy. And that source of true joy is the Father. We already talked about what he's done, but it seems that throughout this whole story, the Father is motivated by one thing only. He wants his sons to have joy. He wants them to have his joy. You see that because he goes to both of his lost sons. He runs to the younger brother when he's way off, and he goes to the older brother when he's standing next to the house, refusing to go in. He goes to them because he wants them to have joy. He throws a party for the younger brother because he wants him to have joy. That party is amazing. I mean, think about it. The younger son has only contributed failure. The father has done everything. And the younger son is the guest of honor at this party. He is throwing a party in his honor, and all he's done is spend half the family fortune. Isn't that amazing? The father wants him to have joy. And God wants us to have joy. God wants us to have joy because God, like the father in this story, delights in his sons. He delights in his children. Every week, we hear the benediction from Zephaniah chapter 3, where it tells us that God rejoices over us with singing. If you believe that, if you actually believe that God delights over you and wants you to have joy, I think it'll change your life. It'll change your life because you no longer have to go through life wondering if God is frustrated with you. You know, why do you think God is frustrated with you? Because you don't give enough to the church or because you keep struggling with certain sins or you don't um, attend church regularly enough or you don't have a good quiet time or, or something like that? We go through our lives certain that God is frustrated with us, but he's not. He delights in his children. So I think there's two questions we can end with, and we'll end with them briefly, because it's 1210. Uh, The first question is, I've talked about joy the whole time, and I never stopped to define it. I want to define joy, figure out what it actually is, and then I want to figure out where we get it. So what is joy? Where do we get it? I want to say this. Joy is not happiness. 
Joy is not uh, an emotion. It's not less than an emotion, but it's not just happiness. It's not just feeling good about your circumstances at the moment. True joy is your ability to see and recognize the beauty and the reality of the true story in the middle of the ups and downs of your life. Uh, True joy is the ability to see and recognize the true story in the middle of the ups and downs of your lives. What is that true story? Well, it's the same thing as the true message that Dave uh, referenced a little while ago, that God saves sinners, that God has dealt with sin and death and the brokenness of this world in Christ, and that he is making all things new. The true story is that this world has a happy ending. God is in charge. God is undoing sin and death. So joy is the ability to live in light of the happy ending. That's what joy is. Um, You don't have to be happy at every moment in the story for that to be the case. You just have to recognize that your story has a happy ending. So that means that um, joy doesn't actually diminish the pleasures of this life. It's not that joy makes you care less about stuff in this life. But what it does do is it refocuses the way you think about those things. When you have joy, when you live in light of the happy ending, then the best things that happen to you in this life, the best things, that perfectly grilled steak, that kiss from your wife, that hug from your kids, uh, that promotion at work, the best things that happen to you in this life are just a taste, just a taste of what the end of the story looks like, just a taste of the happiness and the joy that is ours forever. The worst things that happen to us in this life, joy doesn't uh, diminish those either. Joy doesn't delegitimize our pain. It doesn't tell us to just be happy. It tells us the opposite. If we live in light of the fact that this story has a happy ending, then we are able to walk through our pain confident that the longing that we feel is going to be satisfied. The longing and the pain that we feel will be answered on the day when everything sad comes untrue. So in both our pain and in our pleasure, we can have joy, even if we don't have happiness. So how do we get it? How do we get this joy? I don't want to sound cheesy, but the answer is Jesus. We get this joy through Jesus. That might have been a predictable answer. You see, Jesus is the key to entering the Father's joy. Jesus is everywhere in this story. And it's interesting because it doesn't seem like he is. It seems like the Father is doing everything. But what I want to suggest to you is that Jesus is the patient father letting his younger son go, have what he wants, hoping that his patience will lead the younger son to repentance. Paul says that God does the same thing in Romans 2. Jesus is the father waiting and searching and seeing and running and embracing and kissing and giving a ring and giving a robe and killing the fattened calf. That is all Jesus. Jesus is the ring that represents sonship, the robe that represents home. He is also the fattened calf that dies so that we can celebrate with the father. Jesus is the father going to the older son and pleading with him the words of life come in to my celebration. Jesus is all the best parts of this story, is Jesus. I told you earlier that Jesus is committed to your joy, that that was the one thing I wanted you to take away, and I think that might even be an understatement, because Jesus took on human flesh, 
And Jesus lived, and Jesus died, and Jesus rose again, and Jesus ascended into heaven, and Jesus is reigning at the right hand of God the Father, and Jesus will return for your joy. That's the point. So where's your joy? Where is it? Do you feel it? Do you not feel it? Maybe you're doing the younger brother thing right now, and you're kind of searching for joy in something, in your marriage, or in your kids, or in your work. Or maybe you're doing the older brother thing, and you've just decided you're going to be dutiful and obedient, and if you get joy, great, but you're not really looking for it. Well, the answer is a third way. The answer is to recognize that the joy you want, that void you feel gnawing a hole in your chest that longs to be filled with joy, can only be had if you find your joy in the one who created you for it. The joyful Father who delights to run to you, to embrace you, to kiss you, to delight over you, to celebrate you, who comes to you and implores you, who is patient with you and kind to you, and who loves you and delights you more than you could ever dare to hope. That's where joy is found. Would you pray with me? Our great God, we thank you that you give us your joy. That when we were far off, you sent Christ to us to put a ring on our finger and a robe on our shoulders. And you sent him to die that we can celebrate your joy. Father, would you help us to live in light of the true story that in Christ you have dealt with sin and death and that everything sad is coming untrue. Father, help us to see that our pleasure in this life is preparing us for the joy that is ours for eternity and that our pain in this life cultivates a longing for that same joy. Father, help us to be a people of joy. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.